Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. And that brings us to step two, uh, to acknowledge the specific history and realness of my suffering. Uh, And in this step, uh, we want to identify unhealthy patterns. Uh, And often we miss patterns for events. Uh, Because events are those kind of, those climactic moments. They're like the mountaintops. Uh, And if I ask you to look at, you know, if I ask you to picture mountains in your head, Uh, Chances are what you see are snow-capped peaks. Uh, Well, the problem is snow-capped peaks don't float. Uh, There's a whole lot of mountain underneath that that supports the snow-capped peak. When you have uh, these these peak experiences of unhealth, uh, that is a drinking binge, that is a violent episode of abuse, those events don't float. Uh, They're built... Uh, they stand on top of a life of unhealthiness. We want to begin to see uh, that pattern. And that's why Leslie Varenick tells us, if you want to learn to act right when your spouse acts wrong, you will need to make a commitment to yourself never to pretend that things are fine when they are not. And part of the reason we don't like step two is because we do step two at a time when we're not in crisis. And we don't want to think about crisis when we're not in crisis. Uh, it just, there, there's enough crisis other times I, I just want to enjoy right now. Uh, again, one of the things that we want to differentiate as we do this uh, is responsibility from influence. Uh, responsibility are those things that we have direct volitional ability to change the outcome. Uh, influence uh, is those things that we can't directly change the outcome. We can create a context where the probability of that outcome decreases. And so you'll see uh, there's an evaluation there where we go through some patterns uh, of codependency. Uh, The reason I put all 55 of those questions in there is so that you can look and see uh, what some of those patterns would be. Uh, if you don't want to circle all the numbers and do the scoring, you can just go to uh, bradhambrick.com slash codependency, and there's a self-scoring version where you just click on those. All the math is done for you. Um, but as you look at this assessment, it is a first-person assessment. It is not to say what is happening is your fault. We are going to look at those things that you do uh, that give you influence over the situation. And so there's a collection of things uh, that have to do with uh, those relationships marked by uh, addiction. And one of the first things uh, that we tend to do when we have a loved one uh, who is uh, falling into the snare of addiction, is we cover up. And we tend to do that, honestly, just because it's easier for us. It is easier to take these little steps to keep life moving. Uh, And if we parented this way, our children would never learn to tie their shoes. Uh, Because it is quicker to get out the door if you just tie the shoes for them. 
uh, you can do that so much quicker than they can, and we got to go because we're always late because we got too much on our plate. Um, but oh, that uh, as they give more and more of their life to addiction, and there are more and more neglected responsibilities and added crisis, um, this covering up is a classic way that we respond. And when we do that for our convenience, we're starting to think in the mode of an addict. Because what is addiction all about? Addiction is all about short-term gain for long-term cost. I will take whatever relief I can get right now. And I don't care what it costs me long-term. I just want relief. And when we start to cover up, uh, then uh, we're making that same kind of trade then maybe a little more than covering up is rescuing and fixing. And part of this is because none of us want our loved one to suffer. We would feel guilty if there was something that we could do to reduce the suffering in their life, and we didn't do it. Uh, But when consequences begin to mount in their life, and we rescue them for that, that is the quintessential uh, taking the batteries out of the fire alarm. And then there's nagging. Uh, when we get tired of removing consequences and that kind of thing, then we become the voice of those consequences. Uh, And we feel like everything that we've done gives us the right to say whatever it is that we want to say in this situation. Uh, But the problem is our nagging becomes a distraction. Uh, And it becomes easier to be upset with our verbal repetition uh, than to do the hard work of recovery. And then there's threatening. Uh, And this tends to be just this emotion-laden kind of, I've had it, uh, I lay into you. Um, And we reinforce to our loved one that the consequences never happen because we rarely follow through on whatever it is that we threaten and we say what we're going to do. And what happens there is we become just like the voice of their parents. You know, because their parents, when they were talking to them as teenagers, saying, look, if you drink, you're going to wind up homeless under a bridge. Uh, and the first few times that they drink, there was nothing like that happened, and it was fun, and it was positive social consequence. And it's like, my parents don't know what they're talking about. And when we get upset and make all kinds of threats that aren't really going to happen, but when we get uh, later down the stage to the point that we feel like we're going to act on it, uh, we've become part of that chorus. And then we can look at Uh, some of those um, aspects that pertain to relationships marked by abuse. Uh, And here, uh, one of those things would be lying and creating a false story. Um, You know, we don't want to admit that a relationship is abusive. Uh, And in order to avoid that, we have to lie. We don't just lie to others, we lie to ourselves um, by way of minimizing and excusing Yet maybe we talk about falling down the stairs or our eyes are bloodshot just because we didn't sleep well last night. Um, and what happens there is that the people who actually know us know us less and less. Uh, then there's the constricting social sphere. Uh, to maintain a level of control, uh, the abusive loved one uh, has to reduce the number of healthy voices in your life. Uh, and so they can either do that through isolation just telling you you can't be with those people, or through discrediting, uh, through telling you how stupid they are and they don't know what they're talking about and they're a bunch of hypocrites and that kind of thing. Uh, And as the healthy voices are reduced and discredited, uh, their voice becomes a larger and larger percentage of your life. Uh, 
Uh, And when a loved one begins to forbid or degrade the healthy relationships, that should be a red flag. uh, That uh, that the relationship is getting destructive. And then another area that emerges is self-doubt. You know, for your abusive loved one to have more voice, you must have less voice. Uh, And a primary way for them to create this dynamic uh, is through creating self-doubt. The less you trust you, the more you have to rely on them. And then we can get to the point where we're just, we're fed up. And we retaliate. Uh, And this is usually that point of emotional desperation. Now for some people, desperation looks more like depression and passivity. For other people, it can at this stage be more explosive. Um, but uh, this only adds to the volatility of the relationship. And they point out and go, see, what you're doing is no different from what I'm doing. You do the exact same thing. When you do it, you call it just being exasperated. When I do it, you call it abuse. How is that fair? Um, And a big part of this study is to help us become intentional instead of desperate uh, so that Uh, our responses don't have that exasperatory tone. Uh, And then there's fear of man. Uh, That third arena that we talked about. Uh, And some of the marks there uh, would be surrendering our voice and opinion. Um, Too often, when we relate codependently, we confuse having an opinion with being overbearing. Uh, And, you know, we, we begin not to want to voice our preference about anything. Sometimes because it feels like life is booby-trapped and whenever we say we want something or we like something that can and will be used against us in a moment of explosiveness. Um, But when we surrender voice, even when we're not in uh, a destructive relationship, less and less of who we are is represented in those relationships and so we wind up consistently uh, feeling used and neglected. Uh, then there's ruminating and second-guessing. Uh, just when, when we're in this stage and what everybody else thinks matters much more uh, than what God thinks or what I think. And, it, and so anytime an interaction goes on, we just play it over and over and over again. Uh, and, and we can pick it apart because in some way, in the midst of that, there had to be some perfect way that I was going to make all of my column one responses just like they were supposed to be. And that would have meant that column two would have done just what it was supposed to do. And we said, we're not playing by those rules anymore, right? Uh, but that, that's what that ruminating and second guessing is built on. And then maybe uh, an actually uh, sometimes pleasant aspect uh, is just driven over achievement. Uh, sometimes our fear of man is pretty functional. Uh, we, we are so scared of disappointing uh, that we drive ourselves to exhausted excellence. This idea of needing to be needed, needing to be perfect, which are not uses of need that we're going to advocate for, um, they drive us to succeed, uh, at least initially, and then we get mad at everybody who benefits from what we're doing. Uh, and at no point do we actually just enjoy life Uh, Because we're performing. Uh, Ed Welch, uh, probably one of the authors in this that I appreciate most. He says, perhaps the most dangerous form of the fear of man is the successful fear of man. Uh, Such people think they have made it. And again, Melody Beatty. um, Being overly independent can be just as codependent as being too needy. Uh, Both behaviors are based on fear. 
Now, if we're asking a, an important question here, what, uh, what is the difference between a power and control relationship versus a mutual honoring relationship? Uh, and the answer to that question uh, can't be pain. Uh, as Leslie Vernick says, uh, pain is no proof of a bad relationship or even a harmful one. Uh, that's because we're all sinful people and we disappoint and we hurt one another. Uh, there are no perfect relationships and there are no perfect people. What makes a sinful interaction destructive is the repetitive pattern, the lack of awareness, the lack of remorse, uh, and the lack of significant change. And so, while pain may not be the indicator that this is a destructive relationship, it should at least ask us, uh, cause us to ask some questions. And you'll see two uh, wheels here. Uh, these are not things that I created. Uh, they come from the National Institute on Domestic Violence. Uh, the one on the left is the power and control wheel. Uh, and these are marks of relationships uh, that are destructive uh, or abusive. And then you'll see a corresponding wheel where each segment, each spoke is meant to correspond with what's on the um, power and control wheel uh, that is a relationship of mutual honor. Uh, now, even though this comes from a secular resource, uh, you look at the one on the right, uh, and it pretty much represents the Christian virtues of a shared life. If you take the one another commands of the New Testament and said, what if you had to, to describe those in a way, they would probably look a lot like that. Uh, the ones on the left, they're kind of the classic evidences of non-repentance. Uh, now a warning label. Uh, if you're in a relationship and you think, oh my, this, this, this show reveals it, let me just take it to them and say, see, this is what you're doing. I went to this seminar and, and here it is, and I, I want you to stop this. I finally see it. I found words for it. There it is. Unless they're at a point of being willing to change, they're probably going to look at you like you're stupid. And they're going to go, really? You went to your little seminar. Uh, and you went and you talked and they, they drew you a little picture. And you think, I'm totally the person on the left and you're totally the person on the right. And of course, you're going to go to one of your events with your people and they're going to tell you that. Um, and you're dumb enough to believe them. And in a very condescending, rhetorical, question-laden way, you're going to go, wait a second, I thought I was right. It, it totally made sense when I was in that seminar. And so, uh, a lot of what we're going to do before we get to about step seven is going to be putting us in a position uh, to have those kinds of conversations more effectively. It, <coughs> excuse me, um, and so, what would you do with the wheel right now? Uh, identify the key areas of your relationship uh, that are destructive. Uh, yeah, the relationship that you have in mind may not fit every spoke on there. Which segments are the ones that stand out uh, and that most identify it? Uh, and then release the guilt from that. Now, I think something that is, it warrants our attention and it warrants more attention than we can give it here, uh, is what is the difference uh, when something criminal is going on between mandated reporting and pressing charges. And oftentimes when people don't understand this, uh, they get a legal backlash. And so mandated reporting is what happens when a child is in danger. 
And our legal authorities, our governing authorities, have said if a child is in danger, we will intervene in that situation. Uh, Department of Family and Children's Services, uh, they, they will come in, they will investigate. Uh, the child doesn't have to say, I want this to happen, but the child is being harmed. They will do that. Uh, that is not what happens when an adult is in harm's way. Uh, an adult has to be willing to press charges and maintain those charges throughout the legal process. And oftentimes what I have found is an adult, uh, they will get into a situation, they feel powerless because that often happens with abuse, uh, and they'll reach out and, and they'll start the process thinking somebody else is going to run with the ball. And then when they get weary and they're not ready to see that through, uh, then uh, it winds up being worse for them. And so it, this is larger than what we have time for here. If you feel like you're in that situation, uh, please connect with some of the counseling resources that we have uh, as something to walk with you. If you're saying, I feel like I may know of a situation that requires some mandated reporting, uh, the resources there uh, at bradhambrick.com slash abuse reporting are meant to give you a feel for what that is like so that you can walk into that uh, with confidence. Now, uh, this last part of step two, uh, which is the overall life satisfaction scale, feels a bit like a change of pace. Uh, but the skills that we want to learn uh, are both one part, not letting one, as one aspect of life define all of life, uh, without living in denial about the unhealthiness that's going on. And to this point, we've done a lot more work in that second objective about not living in denial than we have uh, the first objective, which is to still uh, enjoy life. Uh, and so if you'll look here, and all of these resources can be downloaded at brandhambrick.com slash codependency. Um, there's a, a page here uh, that you can go through and just look at the areas of life. And the goal for this is for you to begin to say, you know, does this relationship, whether it's a spouse or a child, a parent, a co-worker, um, how can it not define all of my life? So let me look over each area of my life and see how much I am enjoying each one of those. Uh, and so the question, if you look down at the bottom, uh, general sense of satisfaction, overall life satisfaction, the question I would ask you, and what we want to be able to build towards a yes answer, is can you have a seven day when your loved one has a three day? When, when your loved one, whatever their life struggle is that they're not managing well, they're at a three. They're kind of tanking. They're not doing well. On that day, can you still have a seven? Or is the quality of your day an emotional hostage to the quality of their day? And another thing that I think would be helpful with an instrument like this is if we begin to think in large units of time. And so not just days, but weeks or months. Because sometimes we have a, a bad day and a good week. We have a bad patch of day and a good month. And, and something like this where we can begin to say, you know, my life doesn't fall apart just because they act out. Uh, and that kind of independence that's not defiance, it's backing up while facing forward is a big part of responsibility attribution, 
and emotional regulation and pursuing the things that God made us to pursue in a way that we still want to honor this relationship. We just don't want to be captive to it. And, and from that, I think what Melanie Beatty says here uh, in the context of marriage, uh, she says sometimes people believe incorrectly uh, that recovering from codependency means they have to get a divorce. Uh, her context was a, an alcoholic uh, marriage. She says, my husband's drinking didn't create my codependency. I'd been doing the behaviors his drinking triggered, controlling, taking care of others, neglecting myself, repressing emotions, feeling victimized most of my life. And again, we're just saying that at this stage, as we acknowledge these things and we see what they are and we, we quantify them better, uh, that that doesn't mean that we automatically have to run away. We want to, we want to figure out what is the healthiest way uh, for us to relate in the midst of these situations.